The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. for us all in the end, and we should be conscious of the legacy we leave. However, who can say what will come after us to take our place? A noble successor, or an embodiment of a dark fantasy? Tonight's presentation is Targets, the 1968 suspense film starring Boris Karloff, co-written, directed, and co-starring Peter Bogdanovich. My guest is Paul Morris, and you find us sitting on piles of film cans huddled in the projection booth of a downtown drive-in. Hello, Paul. Hello there, Jeremy. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, yeah. Uh, just as well as I was 30 seconds ago. Good. Uh, try not to pull the curtain back too far for the listener. Oh, beg your pardon. That'll be my first and last. <laughs> well, you're probably wondering why I've summoned you here. And... Uh, I was wondering what you could tell me about Boris Karloff. Ah, is that a genuine question? Yes. No, I haven't misrepresented myself, have I? I haven't, I haven't represented no, myself as some kind just... of Karloff guru. No. Okay. I, <laughs> I'll tell you what, he's the star of some of these universal classic horror films of the 30s, which I have on Blu-ray on my shelf, and I'm very much looking forward to watching, if I can ever find a slot for it. Well... You're probably wondering why I chose you in particular to talk about um, Peter Bogdanovich's 1968 film, Targets. And I know from listening to and enjoying much of your work that you are a writer who specialises in Victorian-style horror, The Penny Dreadful, and other such uh, esteemed classical genres, of which uh, Boris Karloff is almost the human incarnation. Yes, I have played a bit of a furrow, haven't I, in that area. Do you know what? That is... I do enjoy it, but I was sort of dragged into that um, that area by my uh, sometime co-writer, Simon, who you probably don't know. He doesn't. No, I've never met him. No, but um, he is an even bigger horror aficionado than me. So um, do you want me to get him on the phone? <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, I'll manage with you. OK, yes. It is a very enjoyable world to, to write in, isn't it, to inhabit. So, Paul, what were your immediate reactions to watching the film? Well, um, I'm happy to say I enjoyed it. Thank you for, for pointing me in its direction. Uh, if I had to pick up on one thing that I enjoyed most, I think it was the fact that there are two, not wildly different tones, but you know, two quite distinctly different tones in the two strands. And um, I enjoyed watching it flip-flop between the two and wondering quite how they're going to come together. 
And it seems pretty obvious what the connection is once you get there, but um, I tried to turn my brain off, apart from the part of me that was making notes, and just enjoy the ride. It feels like there's a lot of foreshadowing during the course of the story that uh, the character of Byron Orlock is a very old man, he's interested in retiring, death is on his mind, while somewhere across town there is this almost a her spirit figure planning on committing a series of murders and the obvious connection is that he will be killed by this other figure that Orlock yes. will die at the end of the story and in fact that was the original plan that um, Orlock was actually going to die halfway through the movie that's interesting halfway, um, th- halfway through so, I mean, halfway through yes so not presumably in some great act of self-sacrifice that would have tied up his, his character arc with a little bow on it. No. Um, the film actually went through a, quite a, an involved background and its origins are almost two steps removed. Um, it comes from the stable of Roger Corman, who I'm sure, as you know, <laughs> would squeeze money out of a rock. Um, he'd completed shooting on a version of The Raven, the Edgar Allan Poe story, but he had some bits and pieces of set left over, costumes, um, several actors who still had a few days left on their contract. So he said, right, someone go off, write a script, and we'll use up this contracted time and we'll shoot another movie. And that became the terror. Um, but when that finished, they still had Boris Karloff left with two days on his contract. And Peter Bogdanovich, who was at the time working for Corman, said, well, I've got this idea for a movie. You know, how about using some of these unspent resources? And Corman's response was, OK, you've got Boris Karloff for two days. You have to use footage from the terror to bulk out the movie and bulk out the amount of Karloff in your film. But otherwise, as long as it doesn't cost any more than $125,000, you can do whatever you want. So Bogdanovich already had half an idea for this, did he? Because I'd, I'd read up on some of that background before and I kind of got the impression that the whole impetus came from <laughs> Roger Corman being thrifty. That's interesting. Bogdanovich had the, had the story idea of uh, someone committing a murder by shooting through a cinema screen at someone in the audience. And that was his original seed of an idea, which he'd had about seven or eight years earlier. But it was only now that he were, had he he made a previous film called The Wild Angels, and was now able to sort of use these resources to make this into a real movie. And the 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 story idea coalesced when he thought of starting the movie with a joke, which was as the as the actual movie does, starting it with footage from the terror of this castle with Boris Karloff as the count and and the, the climax of the movie with the crypt flooding and all this gothic goings on and then suddenly the film shuts off and we cut to a screening room and Boris Karloff says that's the worst picture I ever made <laughs> that's terrific the um yes I, I assume that's not the way Roger Gorman was expecting him to use his footage. I mean, do you, do you think he really was thinking that, that somehow this footage from the terror might be incorporated in a, what's the word, diegetic sense, actually become part of this new tale rather than being a film within a film? 
I don't know. Um, or did he know he was going to get a, a realistic uh, story with... Well, Corman's, uh, Corman's quite an unusual figure, because although he has a reputation for churning out very cheap uh, horror pictures very quickly, he was also the first person to distribute Ingmar Bergman in the US. So he had an eye for exploiting underserved audiences. So he might have been thinking, well, with this idea, this is more of an art house production. This is mm. more of a, um, a sort of a New York picture that would play well there with Karloff giving a, a, you know, a proper serious performance. That's something that would appeal to a certain segment of the audience. Right. And an art, art picture is another way of um, getting a lot of bang for your buck, isn't it? So the business exactly. in him would have approved of that. Exactly, yes. As I, um, I was just thinking from a, you know, as a very low-level writer, but a writer nonetheless, I've occasionally had projects where I've had to, had a shopping list of technical requirements. You've got to use this bit of footage or cover the lack of this actor with this, um, with some archive footage here. So I think that's probably the direction I can, I can imagine that would have been quite satisfying to Bogdanovich to think, to think I'm lumbered with having to include this horror film footage rather than that being a burden how do I turn that around and make it actually contribute to the, the atmosphere the story I'm telling it tops and tails the film very nicely the other big inspiration uh, he had when he was writing the script with uh, his then wife Polly Platt was the Charles Whitman murders in 1965 where Whitman who was a you may well have heard the story he was a US Marine who'd been honourably discharged. He'd enrolled at the University of Texas at Austin as a student, and then one day took several rifles up into the uh, observation deck of the tower at the university and started shooting at people. And um, I believe over 30 people were injured, over a dozen were killed, uh, until he was eventually shot by police. And the contrast between the gothic horrors that Corman was still making, all these Edgar Allan Poe-inspired pictures, and the stark realism and the, the brutalism of just a man randomly shooting at people in the street in a modern American city, I think the dichotomy of that struck him as being the origin of a story that was worth telling. Because that's then the the focus of the story, that these two story strands of you have the ageing horror actor ageing out of the world and wanting to retire, and you have this young, good-looking, clean-cut, all-American type who is planning to, and then does, murder his family, and then start shooting at people randomly for no reason at all. Absolutely. There's some very large and very obvious contrasts, aren't there? Dualities in the film and even as I said before in, in the tone it would have been easy if the um, the horror strand sorry the, the strand about the ageing horror actor had been more serious in tone but that's actually where most of the comedy in the film comes from which is a nice un yes. un unexpected addition I didn't know about the, the Charles Whitman um, case I mean is he one of the first of the modern era of serial killers because I know it was a sp it, I, I I, I know it's not, I know it's not exactly a serial killer, of course. But, no, uh, spree killer is the, spree, um, the right, more common okay. term. Yeah. Um, but yes, he is, I think, regarded as the, sort of the first modern spree killer in that sense. And of course, um, Snipers seems very, very 1960s. I didn't know about that, but I was wondering if you know, 
JFK would still be what's popularly believed to have been the perpetrator of the JFK killing would still have been in every, fresh in everyone's minds at this point. Both men, in fact, Oswald and Whitman, are cited in dialogue in Full Metal Jacket um, for their uh, high quality of marksmanship because they were both trained <laughs> in, the, in the US Marine Corps. And yeah. there is a shot in the film where um, young Bobby Reynolds... Is that his name? Reynolds? Good question. Is, is that correct? Or Johnson? Bobby Johnson. Um, there, is a, there is a shot of him in photograph in a military uniform with the inference being that he served in Vietnam. Yes, it is an inference, isn't it? Because I, I did read a very brief um, summary of the setup of the film in advance, and it, meant, and it was quite heavy on the fact that he's a Vietnam vet. But that's not made explicit in the film, is it? As you say, apart from... No, there's just that one inference, and there's very little, very little background to Bobby at all. I mean, for me, it's the, if we were looking for any kind of trigger for the direction he goes in, it... it the father is the most obvious factor. Well, that's interesting. I was reading up today about Charles Whitman himself, and he came from a very abusive family. His father was physically and emotionally abusive towards his wife and his children, and cultivated a love of firearms in his children from a very young age. And yet, um, his father was spared by Whitman's killing. He Whitman killed his wife and his uh, mother, just as Bobby does. But mm. the father is not seen again. No, that is quite telling, isn't it? It's interesting that even at this distance, um, he's picking up on that element of American society. I mean, it's still so very... We think of it as a very current issue. But I think that's probably why the Vietnam angle is underplayed, because... It doesn't need to be just cause and effect in that simplistic way. It's it doesn't. It doesn't. The, it doesn't necessarily need to be that Vietnam was the bad war. It could just have been he was a military officer and now he's using all his guns in civilian life as well. Because as 1967, when the movie was shot, Vietnam was still going relatively well, as far as I'm aware. Hmm. The other, the only other film it reminded me of in sniper terms is—is is, is it the original Dirty Harry? Is about. Oh yes. Some of the setups seem very similar. High, high angle sniper action. Well, Dirty Harry was With, also inspired by a real life serial killer. Do we know which? The Zodiac. Right. Okay. And, and although and this I, is another sniper, this is a spree, a serial killer rather than spree killer in Dirty Harry. Yes, he's because he's targeting specific individuals over a longer period of time. Yeah. Whereas spree killers will generally just shoot anyone who comes near them. Mm. Now, again, that all seems very naturalistic, but it comes from the the initial idea you said of somebody being shot through a cinema screen, which is quite melodramatic and Hitchcockian. I th I thought so. It's interesting that he's worked back from that starting point. Well, Bogdanovich had been uh, working as a film writer and journalist and interviewer for many years and he'd actually cultivated a lot of friends including being good friends with Alfred Hitchcock being good friends with um, Fritz Lang who um, gave him advice on how to uh, shoot with zoom cameras and um, George Cukor advised uh, mentioned how to work with colour schemes in a film because if you note the, the uh, Orlock scenes tend to be warm earth colours reds, 
browns, rich, warm tones, whereas Bobby's scenes are whites and blues and much colder and more clinical. Interesting. Yeah. That would fit. He's a a clinical character in every sense, isn't he? He almost seems to suffer from OCD, perhaps, which is interesting that whether it be, you know, folding jumpers and laying out his guns in a nice orderly pattern, even in the boot boot of his car. Well, uh, early in the film, uh, Byron, having watched the end of uh, his most recent picture, he has decided that he's going to retire. He's had enough of these sort of slightly sort of phony-ish horror stories, particularly with the world being as it is. But his director, Sammy Michaels, is appalled because he's written this great new script. <laughs> and Michaels is played by Bogdanovich himself. Indeed. And, and we're led to infer that the great new script is Targets itself. <laughs> but Orlok is having none of it. He's, uh, he's determined to fade away quietly um, travel back to England. Although, in, in contrast to um, Karloff himself, who had no intention of retiring at all, even though he was in appalling health. Um, he had braces on both legs. He had half of one working lung. Uh, he frequently had to take oxygen between takes. Um, but um, he was still working, and this wasn't even his last film. He um, he shot segments for four Mexican horror films after this. <laughs> Uh, in the 18 months before he died. Yes, he he did appear to have gone downhill physically, even from the clips of him in the uh, in the terror that were included on. Well, even the scenes in the with the terror, it was it was a similar case that he was he's not in the film that much. <laughs> yeah, I believe he worked three days on the terror, and although he was only contracted for two days on targets, he actually worked five hmm. because he'd been so impressed by the script. The how does that t- how does that work? They couldn't have written him any extra stuff. Is it the case that they um, the Bogdanovich wrote the, the script he wanted to shoot, and Roger Corman told him you you won't be able to do all that in two days. So he it's, just he was just crossing his fingers and hoping. What I believe the case is that um, he the original script he'd shown to Karloff, and Karloff had liked it very much, and said, uh, "If you need me for more, then I'll I'll make the time." But the script was then completely rewritten by Sam Fuller, who was another sort of movie veteran that Bogdanovich had um, become close to. And his, his name was actually Samuel Michael Fuller, hence Sammy Michaels. Um, and um, Fuller restructured much of the movie, expanded a lot of Orlok's scenes, and uh, wrote a lot of the dialogue. And apparently... He rewrote the entire script in about three hours and did it entirely by dictation. <laughs> so a lot of it came off just the top of his head. Mm. Show off. I know, I hate it when people do that. <laughs> but uh, as uh, Orlok is leaving the studio and concerned that he might be breaking up the romance between his assistant Jenny and Sammy, uh, there's actually a line where he says, oh, if, if, if that's the way he wants it, then let him have it. And we immediately cut to the sight of Orlok through the crosshairs of a rifle. And that's, that's, that's one of Fuller's little tricks, that, having that line and that cut. Almost like a uh, conceptual match cut. Yep. Because across the road, Byron, uh, uh, Bobby rather, is um, buying some more guns and some more ammunition. And putting it on his dad's account. Yes. Both, both literally and possibly 
Metaphorically, we don't know. And it's it's when he goes out to his car to uh, stow the guns in the boot, when we look inside and see the guns are perfectly laid out, like in a trophy cabinet, you immediately know there's something wrong. Because it's not like they're kept in cases or anything like that. It's no, they're perfectly laid out as though like they're, they're items of worship almost. He, does he remind you of any other uh, noted movie killers? Norman Bates. Yeah. That's, oh, good. I'm glad that wasn't just me. It's <laughs> because Norman, Norman Bates is a much more sympathetic character because he's a victim. He's explicitly a victim of other people. Hmm. Um, whereas Bobby is, by the, by the end of the story, he's totally unrepentant. His last line before he's taken away is, oh, I hardly ever missed once, did I? <laughs> he he's, he's just has no sense of conscience. Whereas every time Norman Bates wakes up from his catatonia and realises what's happened, he's absolutely appalled. So they, they're suffering from different uh, clinical symptoms. I guess Bobby's more of a, a psychopath or sociopath, completely unable to identify with his victims as, as people, whereas Norman, well, we all know what. He has a sort of dis- <laughs> disasso- disassociative personality disorder. Hmm. And pop culture schizophrenia. Exactly, yes. There's, there's some nice dialogue as, um, as Byron is talking outside the, uh, the, the studio. It's, the world belongs to the young. His uh, producer, I think it's Sammy, says, "If you could retire if you want, but after six months, you'll blow your brains out." Yeah, I quite liked his um, explanation for why. It's a rather pithy explanation for why he was bored of the same old horror films. Anybody can walk through the special effects for you. Yes, I thought that was particularly notable because that's exactly the problem <laughs> with major movies now: is that they they rely often too much on visual effects. Yeah. In the same way that horror movies at the time relied too much on the the Kensington Gore. <laughs> Karloff was apparently quite concerned about how much his character sort of does himself down in the dialogue. And Bogdanovich had to repeatedly assure him, says, No, no, if if you're that modest, the audience will like you more because they'll want to they'll want you to be more they'll want to be more supportive towards you. And I think that, that works very well because he's so modest and um self-deprecating about his ability and yet he's he's actually a genuinely really likeable warm charming character yeah it's a good choice to start him off at the very beginning by setting up opposite this rather cliche hollywood executive we sympathize with the writer but we don't really have uh, much sympathy with the producer do we no because he's he's all about money the producer's all about money the, the filmmaker wants to make art, but people are stopping him for whatever reason. But the actor is just... He just doesn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. He doesn't see anything in it of value anymore. No, I imagine it's been a very long time since he even thought that art was part of the, his world. So Bobby drives home, and as on his way, he uh, drives through uh, Reseda, uh, one of Los Angeles' many thousands of suburbs, and there is a placard outside the drive-in theatre saying that Byron Orlock will be making a personal appearance. Um, he parks at his house and we have a, a look through his home until finally his family come in. And there's his father, whom he calls Sir, because they always do. They do, don't they? 
Yes, I was. I, I mentioned another podcast about how odd that is. It um, catches me up every single time he does it. But uh, it's not necessarily a clue that there's anything dysfunctional in that family, is it? Because I guess that would have been fairly normal, even in a nice. Um, yeah, it it's, it suggests the uh, you know the the standard conservative hierarchy of the uh, the American nuclear family, and uh, Bobby lies about going to the gun shop as well. Um, and a notable element I discovered is that um, you may have noticed the film has no music score. Your take it? Do you know what? Okay, this is uncanny. It was this is an exact point in my notes at which I have written no music in capitals. That's when I noticed. Because it was the fact that there's a lot of lot of music and background noise in in the scenes that tipped me off that actually that's why that's all we're hearing. The long scene where Bobby arrives home and the television's on. That we've got we've got the family talking and listening to the television. There's um, the television on in Karloff's flat, and it just continues throughout the film, doesn't it? There's a yes. lot of real world ambience. It was partially money. Um, and partially an attempt to make it more grounded and more realistic. Um, there is diegetic music playing uh, whenever Bobby's driving around. He's listening to pop music on the car radio. Yeah. And Bogdanovich said that they had they paid for the rights to five songs, <laughs> and they squeezed every second they could out of those songs to <laughs> avoid having to pay them pay for any more or make it obvious how short-handed they were. But he suggests that this is in fact the first film to be scored with a needle drop soundtrack to really? just be scored by pre-existing um, popular music. I was going to ask you that, how unusual that would have been in 1968. Well, there you are. Well, that's, that's quite groundbreaking, he, isn't it, in a quiet sort of way? He notes that uh, the following year when Easy Rider was made, they used almost his entire crew and the idea of a needle drop soundtrack. <laughs> Easy Rider. Also, I saw that in my I saw that in my research. Was there? Yes, that was the cinematographer, was it? Who went among other people? Laszlo Kovacs. Yeah. Uh, who previously was usually credited as Leslie Kovacs, <laughs> um, but who because he wouldn't use his real name on anything he wasn't proud of, and this was the first film in which he used his real name. That's quite touching. Yeah. Also, um, the uh, house where Bobby's family live was actually the sets for Byron's hotel room, reconfigured and repainted, because they didn't have enough money to do any more than that. Oh, they got away with that then, didn't they? Yeah, it doesn't really That's, notice that, because no. the uh, cocktail bar uh, where Byron talks with his agent consisted of that booth. That was the entirety of the set. <laughs> but it looks so realistic that... Um, you don't notice that you don't see any more than that. No. Um, again, I did a very, very, very small amount of research on this, and I did watch a, an interview with Bogdanovich. I think he was asked what one of the best tips he'd ever got from another director was. And I forget the other director, but he was told, never use an establishing shot as an establishing shot. Never, never use a wide shot as an establishing shot. If you did a wide shot, use it at the right moment in the narrative when it will have the maximum impact. Don't just lazily start the scene with it. So, you know, if you don't need a wide shot or an established shot of a cocktail bar, which you don't, don't build Alfred it. Alfred Hitchcock. Well, was it? I've... Yes. <laughs> um, because he says the same thing on the DVD commentary. And he uses that later on when Bobby goes to the, um, the gas container site that he'd driven past earlier in the film. It's not until the end of him setting up 
that we then see an establishing shot of where he is in relation to the freeway. So that after all his preparations, then yeah. Yeah. with the establishing shot was shown, that that's where he is, and this is where his victims are going to be. So that image then tells the story rather than just telling you, and here's where the scene is. Um, have you seen Bohemian Rhapsody? I have. Yeah. I, uh, uh, obviously, it's not a trick question. It's not a trick question, no. Um, but I watched a very interesting video online that dissected that notorious um, Riverside scene hmm. that's, so, that's so horrendously edited. And it sort of picked the whole thing apart and said, well, if you do it this way, this, like this, 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 and this. And an interesting point that the, uh, the person behind the video said was that every edit has to be part of telling the story. There has to be a reason why you then cut to this character or cut to that angle because it has to actually have some relevance to the story you're telling. It's not just you're seeing something else that's happening in the room. And that's very much the case in Targets, that because the film was made on such a tight budget, on such a short schedule, everything has to count. Every image, every cut has to push the story onwards. So having the, the establishing shot at the end of that sequence rather than at the start, that shows exactly what... Bobby's plan's going to be with one single still shot of a landscape. And that's all you need to be told. You don't have to any exposition and any of that one image because that's economical storytelling. Yep. I can identify with that. As a as a writer in the audio medium, um, it's it's a similar sort of discipline to not over using description in dialogue of surroundings or actions or whatever. If you can leave as much as possible to the audience's imagination to let yep. the mind fill it in. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's a, Again, it's don't, don't treat it as, yeah. a, um, as a drawback, something you have to work around. Work with it. Use it to make the storytelling better. Limitations can be surprisingly freeing because it cuts away um, all the other extraneous options. And it leaves you with a much clearer path of what you want to do. I keep thinking I ought to buy a set of um, Brian Eno's oblique strategies for my own writing, because like putting something out of a box that says, write the next paragraph with a hat on your foot, or whatever they say, it sort of <laughs> focuses the mind more towards specific creative paths rather than trying to just pull string out of the air. Yep. I don't know if that. I don't know if they actually say things like that, but I'm I'm fairly no. sure it's like start from the middle or something like that is yep. what, is one of his. I've had days when that could have helped. Oh well. <laughs> I was trying to read my notes. So we did we skip over the the initial murders of his family and and on to the no, oh no, no that was my fault wasn't it no no we haven't got that far no, yet th- don't worry. Me. Um, Bobby and his father go to a shooting range, and um, they're taking pot shots at the targets and. Um, his dad goes to set up um, some more bottles or what have you, and Bobby takes aim at his father's back and is just on the verge of shooting him when he turns around and says, Oh, what are you doing? Are we quite sure he's on the verge of shooting him? And it's only... Do we think he's got some sort of... Um, he wouldn't be prepared to shoot him in to his face? No. I think... Because that, he does later. He doesn't shoot his, he doesn't shoot his father. No. But he would be, uh, I, I think, with the kind of 
typical pathology of this kind of character, they wouldn't be able to take an action to their father's face. It would always be behind their back. And you see him starting to squeeze the trigger. So I think mm. that he is he is planning on doing it there. Because under the circumstances, you could easily pass this off as being a terrible accident. Right, if it's... Yeah, but only if he's facing away. Yeah. So, that, uh, yeah, so, he has so, thought so there's it, a practical so he has reason as well. That's right, okay. Jenny comes to see Byron in his hotel room. And um, he says that she's sulking. But uh, she's furious with him because of his behaviour. <laughs> And um, she says that he wants to think that everyone's betrayed him, but that despite all his guilt and self-pity, there are people who still care about him. And it sort of opens up the idea that their their relationship has been quite long-lasting. This sort of unlikely uh, partnership between the the ageing horror actor and the young Chinese-American assistant... Mm. who apparently gives him Chinese lessons in her off hours. Yeah, there's a lovely backstory there that we only get a brief glimpse of, isn't there? Again, it's it's economy. You don't need to you don't need to know much other than they they have a history, they have a friendship. But um he's sort of apt to wallow rather than engage with uh, his problems or the people around him. Because, in a sense, he wants to retire. He just wants to run away from all his problems back to England and and live quietly in the Cotswolds or what have you. He just wants to go and hide from the world rather than confront it. So the story, in that sense, is about him uh, coming to terms with the changing in the uh, the world, that horror is leaking from cinema into real life and there is nothing to be gained from hiding from it. Um, there's then a very long... Oh, actually, as she, as she leaves, the room service uh, dinner set arrives and um, the, uh, the waiter sets it all up off camera and then the camera pans across to reveal that it's actually set the table for two because Byron wants to have dinner with Jenny and I think that's, that's just a, a sweet little detail. But... Um, because of their argument, she's stormed off and he's left angry and lonely. And that that goes from a pan and it cuts to another pan of um, the Johnson family at home in a sequence which lasts with one continuous shot for over five minutes. Is it that long? That's interesting. I didn't notice that. I must have been engrossed. I do prefer... Um long continuous takes when they don't draw attention to themselves it's very it's a very simple sequence it's not uh, in any way showy the family's watching television um irene uh, bobby's wife says oh i've got to go off to work and she goes off to get ready and then bobby follows her and he tries to talk to her about he he's he's been having all these thoughts recently and something's happening to him and he doesn't really understand what it is and it's obvious that he's trying to articulate this turbulence that's inside him much as with Charles Whitman actually spoke to a psychiatrist and said that he he keeps having these uncontrollable feelings of rage and he doesn't know what to do about them and he he thinks that sooner or later he's just going to get a gun and shoot someone and the psychiatrist never told the police which was great how very professional 
Yeah, I mean, obviously at the time he thought, oh, he's just blowing off steam, he's not actually going to do it. Irene brushes off Bobby slightly and says, and he says, oh, you think I can't do anything? And she replies, I think you can do anything you put your mind to. And that's almost like sort of stealing him for what he's been planning. So she goes off, he goes back into the other room to watch television with his parents, they go to bed, leaving him on his own. And after a short while, he turns the television off and he goes as well. And they actually cut a 30-second chunk of him sitting on his own <laughs> because he was sitting there for so much longer than Bogdanovich had intended and then, <laughs> and then got up and carried on the scene. thought, well, what are we supposed to do with this? So he very carefully found two frames that were similar enough that he cuts between them. Oh, and well, that works you can, as well. You can, you can apparently see one of his fingers move slightly, but um, otherwise there's... There's, you can't tell that there's a 30-second cut in the middle of this scene, and it's this continuous five-minute shot. And is this where, when everyone else has gone to bed, he steals out to the car and picks up his gun? One particular gun? Yes. Now, the way that's directed, the way he walks back into the house and we stay outside, uh, was am I alone in expecting there to have been... A murder off camera at that point. I was expecting gunshots. I would, the, fir- the first time I saw the film, I was expecting there to be a gunshot. Yeah, because and again, think... that's the tradition. That would have been the traditional way of, of, of well, shooting. That kind of, of twist. Uh, yes, of, of filming that sequence because the he's you know he has guns. You know there's something wrong. You know that he's planning to do something, but you don't know what it is. Other than it's going to involve terrible violence. He goes to get a gun out of his car. He goes back into his house where his parents are asleep. The assumption is that this is going to pay off, but mm. it doesn't. And it's just, it's pulling back from giving you that completion. Mm. And so it's still, it's giving you that tension still. It's leaving you on edge because it's not completing the phrase. Yeah. I mean, it's the second time it's pulled back. I mean, we thought he was going to shoot his father earlier on, but this has built it up. Even to an even greater pitch, hasn't it? Especially as you say, coming at the end of that long, continuous shot, following his point of view for all that time, out of the house and then not following him back in, is very tantalising. <laughs> and then to not pay it off with anything in particular at the end, I think Hitchcock would have been would have been proud. Mm. Meanwhile, Byron has got absolutely shit faced. Um, and he's watching one of his old films on television uh, as there is a knock on the door and in a sort of a, an, a nice meta twist, Byron quotes uh, Pose the Raven, which is uh, the Raven is the reason why this film exists in the first place because of all the leftover resources. But also it's the kind of movie that Orlok himself would have been in because Orlok effectively is Boris Karloff. And it's Sammy who <laughs> himself is drunk and wants his script back because he thinks Byron's been treating him in a very cavalier manner. But then he notices that the criminal code's on TV and he immediately starts watching that. <laughs> very funny scene, and it's so unexpected. I mean, even by this point, it's still like unexpected to have something quite this this joyously silly. Um, there's a nice bit of backstory because um, Sammy says that he'd seen the criminal code at a screening at the Museum of Modern Art... And the reason that might be is because Bogdanovich himself had programmed the first ever retrospective of Howard Hawks's work 
at the Museum of the Modern Art, including The Criminal Code, which was Boris Karloff's first major film role. Um, he actually shot it before Frankenstein. Right. And uh, as Sammy says, all the good movies have already been made, which apparently is one of Bogdanovich's own mantras. And was even then. Well, all he, Even as Bogdanov- he was starting to invent a new kind of cinema. Well, it's, it's odd because he says in his commentary that he, he doesn't really like thrillers and he doesn't really like science fiction. Um, so um, most of his films are more character drama or comedy and they are they tend to be about the film industry itself but it's the film industry of yesteryear so you have films like Nickelodeon or What's Up Doc which is very much a harking back to screwball comedies of the 30s more recently you have The Cat's Meow which is about Charlie Chaplin and Marion Davis it's always looking back Mm. Um, few of his films are truly contemporary I think the exception might be Star 80, and that's, uh, if memory serves, that's about an um, adult film actress who tries breaking through into the mainstream who wound up being murdered by her husband. So even then, it's, it's about sort of the corrupting nature of the film business. Boris Karloff on set apparently had a... Um, he would never refer to uh, the dialogue as the lines. He would either call them the jokes or the lyrics. <laughs> Which I think is almost like a, you know, a music hall, um, term of of thinking of them as a performance rather than text. Interesting. As he and uh, Sammy talk, he points to a newspaper about how there's been murders in a supermarket. Youth kills six in supermarket. Yes, mm. that was that grew out of an earlier idea of. Um, filming some kind of murder sequence in a supermarket um, of something like someone pulling a can off the shelf and behind, on the other side of the aisle was Karloff and he pokes a gun through and shoots him. Um, But the main reason they thought it would be a good idea is because supermarkets have really lovely flat floors which are great for dollying on. (laughs) So again, it's thinking about, you know, limitations in practical terms. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to completely derail everything here by telling you that the thing that popped into my head apropos youth kills six in the supermarket is that there's a running joke in P.G. Woodhouse novels uh, generally Jeeves and Worcester about um, newspaper headlines about somebody slaying six this could be a complete and utter coincidence it's not even a particularly (laughs) well-known recurring theme in Woodhouse but it's it's mostly used for its alliterative alliterative effect it's always slays, slays six but I thought that was interesting. It could well be um, a reference. Um, Bogdanovich loves elements of the past. He loves his nostalgia. Yeah. I mean, it is, as I say, newspaper headlines. It's not, um, it's not that much of a reach. How can we find out, Jeremy? Uh, I could write this, to him. This could be the one new fact I've brought to the discussion. No, I'm very impressed. Unless it's not true. Um, it's, it, it strikes me as the kind of thing that might be deliberate. Um, it's the sort of I'll, thing a playful uh, writer would do. You know, you've got a newspaper headline, so you think to, rather than making one up from scratch, you think, how can I pastiche other fictional newspaper ar- headlines? Yeah, tough it up a bit. Toff arrested for stealing policeman's helmet, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I can't really explain where, why it, how it um, works in that Woodhousing world, because it doesn't really, it's a bit grim, isn't it? But I think even in even there, it's Woodhouse making a rare nod towards the... The seamy side. The seamy side of the 20th century, the post-Edwardian era. 
Well, he um, he does include fascists in his stories with um, Sir Roderick Spurd and the Black Shorts. He does. That's as close to satire as he as he gets. Well, I um, I, I think you know there is uh, there is an awareness that there is there is a, a sort of a world outside this little uh, fun bubble of um, upper class twittery. Um, but um, he's keeping it at sufficient arm's reach. I mean, I, I can't say that I'm a huge uh, Woodhouse scholar. I've only read about two or three of his books. But um, he clearly thought that fascism was a ripe source for humour for how absurd it all was and how everyone was dressing up in silly costumes and taking themselves yeah. desperately seriously. Some people unfairly criticised him for that, but, I mean, that nobody criticised Charlie Chaplin for, for trying to satirise fascism. So, it's he was he. It's the only tool he's got. He's not a he's not a writer of those big, serious, heavy Russian novels. As again, again, as Bertie Wooster often says. So, if he wants to address the real world, that's 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 what he's got at his disposal. There was some controversy later on, I believe, about his broadcast that he made during the Second World War mm. that suggested that he might have had um, fascist sympathies. But uh, from what I've heard they were sort of lightly under duress yeah as far as i know (laughs) there's no sense there's no suggestion at all other than any suggestion that he actually had fascist sympathies is pure and utter propaganda put about by one or two journalists possibly under government orders and it was just uh, wartime propaganda because we did it as well he was just a naive, slightly foolish, dithery old man, uh, even even at the outbreak of the war, and he got caught up in the German advance in his French countryside retreat and um, spent the rest of the war in a German prisoner war camp. And he claims he just did these comical broadcasts to uh, pass the time and a little bit of money and assure his friends that he was safe. That's all. And, uh, you know, if you can divine the writer's character from his work, then he seems like the sort of person for whom that could be true. So, but, but a lot of people believe this, this propaganda mm-hmm. from the Daily Mirror, oddly enough, and um, he never came back to Britain again after the war because so many people just believed, just lapped it up. Mm. It's and it's, um, it wasn't until he was in his 90s that he finally received his knighthood, I believe. Yes, this is true. Yes, uh, he probably would have come back for that, but um, it was slightly too late at that point. One of Byron's lines as he's uh, talking with Sammy is, uh, my kind of horror isn't horror anymore. No one's afraid of a painted monster. So it's um, it's almost ties in with that, that the uh, the, uh, the old-fashioned bogeymen mm. are no longer frightening. It's the idea of horror in one's own street, in one's own backyard, almost as in, in one's own household. That's the sort of thing that he's seeing now, that the world is becoming this much more frightening, warped place, and that the uh, the old fancy dress costumes are just spook stories for children. Yes, it's taken there the is, fun out of it. Th- there's a story that um, at one of the original previews for Night of the Living Dead, um, it was treated as a you know, fun time monster movie, and that a large part of the audience was children under the age of 10 <laughs> because they thought oh it's going to be like yeah, yeah fun 
monster movie, you know, like with the big ants and what have you. And instead, it's an incredibly dark, grim, violent, brutal story. Smashing, and, children, and children are being taken out of there, screaming their heads off, you know, traumatised for life. What a lovely, um, th- what a lovely thought. Uh, it's probably not the sort of thing that George Romero wanted. Good publicity, surely. <laughs> yeah, th- this film's not suitable for children. <laughs> they said the same thing about Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> uh, Sammy suggests that he'll offer his script to Vincent Price, which I thought was a, uh, an amusing yep. in-joke. Very good. Um, and as they are both very drunk, they collapse into bed. Uh, Bogdanovich was apparently quite um, self-conscious in that scene. Firstly, because he was doing a proper acting scene opposite one of his idols, and also because he'd never actually been drunk in his life and he didn't know how to act that way. Oh, really? He did a Richard E. Grant, did he? Uh, I believe he doesn't drink rather than can't. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, and there is actually a line that he dubbed on later saying, oh, I, I couldn't have another drink, I've already had too many. To sort of say, yes, I'm drunk. <laughs> because he was worried that it wasn't being sufficiently conveyed in his performance. <laughs> Irene gets home, and Bobby's still up smoking in bed. And, again, it's a very creepy, eerie scene of him just laying in bed in silence, in the dark, smoking. I'm sorry to keep using this phrase because it's given me, given me the impression I've never watched any films that aren't Alfred Hitchcock. But again, I thought there was a very Hitchcockian moment. Not just the atmosphere, but the, some of the technicalities of it. It's, um, the lighting. The lighting, yeah. The fact that, um, the fact that it only just works, technically, uh, shining a spotlight on him every time he takes a drag on his cigarette. It's, um, it reminds me very much the sort of setup Hitchcock would have gone for, which... Uh, it- it's an it's a nicely artificial idea, just fading up a light whenever he takes a drag, as you yeah. say, because it, that wouldn't happen in real life. No, but it's uh, it's like in the birds where Tippy Hedren's watching the line of uh, petrol catch fire, and as and it's done in in three still frames, rather than a shot of her turning and looking. So that's it's that artifice that conveys the emotion and the mood of the scene far better than performing it realistically. Yes, if that had been lit like The Godfather, it wouldn't have had quite the same impact, would it? No, I think The Godfather looks far too brown. <laughs> that as well. It's a very brown film. I mean, it's, it is, like, people it's, make jokes about how the seven, in the 70s everything was brown. Yes, it's the, like the, wall, the wallpaper and the clothes and the drinks. And The Godfather, everything is brown. It's the oxtail soup of mafia films, isn't it? Even the cars are wood panelled. As Irene gets into bed next to him, we realise that Bobby actually has a gun by his bedside. And and there's a a hard cut to the following morning. And bang, bang, bang. The the letters of die are typed out on a typewriter. Yep. Very clever. It's such a, a, a... Such a strong, hard way of cutting. And it's such an abrupt, brutal cut from this dimly lit room to this pure sheet of white paper with red ink stamped onto it. And Irene comes in to say good morning and Bobby just picks up the gun and as she kisses him, he shoots her in the stomach. And it's done so casually and so unceremoniously that the first time I saw it, it took me a moment to register what had actually happened. And we've already done it almost without thinking. Yeah, we've already had two scenes which, to a greater or lesser degree, built up the tension before not releasing it 
This time he takes the opposite trick, and apart from, as you say, the, the slight clue of the typewriter, he just jumps straight in. His mother comes in, and he shoots her. There's a young man bringing in groceries as well, and he is also shot. And then Bobby just quietly, methodically tidies up. He locks the door. He puts his mother in the bed. It's just carefully tidying everything away. Yep. Nice, nice and neat, just as Whitman did. It's another continuous take, isn't it? Following around the house, dra- rearranging bodies and. I believe and so, but it's much shorter. Right. It feels quite long. <laughs> I think because because of the tone, because you're now, uh, it's almost like you've become an accomplice to it because yep. it's presented as it's... so flat and affectless and because he is so flat and affectless and he's just going about this completely blank faced like an automaton so it feels like you're you're part of this now is it too soon for me to mention hitchcock again i mean the the first thing that pops into my head which is not a particularly strong link but it reminded me of the murder in torn curtain where i believe hitchcock wanted to show that (laughs) trying to kill somebody is not actually as easy as most films make it look and dragged out a single murder into quite a long, rather unpleasantly clinical scene with the camera just refusing to, t- to take a, his eyes off the grim goings-on. And this, although this is different in that the murders, the murders themselves are very quick, something about the lingering of the aftermath reminded me. It, it has that... Because it's not just showing the murder, it's showing the aftermath of the murder. It's showing how the character is processing what they've just done. In Torn Curtain, um, the character, it's, it's a kill-or-be-killed scenario because he's a spy and he's trying to escape and he's been caught, so he has to strangle this guy or shove his head in the oven. Or, yeah. I can't remember, I can't remember a, quite how the scene There's goes. a lot more emotion in, in it, isn't there, both in the, in the murder and the aftermath in Torn Curtain. Abs- yes, because um, but Paul Newman's character, who, who, committed the, who commits the murder, he's not a spy. He's some sort of university professor, I believe. So he is not emotionally prepared for this, for what he has to do. Whereas Bobby is just completely focused, completely single-minded, and treats it as um, almost like a household chore. So now, I, think, I think that's it's it's an interesting um, dichotomy. We've seen quite a few psychopaths in, in movies since then that have, feel similar to Bobby but this would have been the first time I guess we'd seen anybody been encouraged to not so much get inside their head but to identify with them just from the point of view that we're they're the only character in these scenes that we're following. Alfred Hitchcock was um, working on a project I believe around then or maybe a, a year or two earlier called Kaleidoscope which was going to be um almost like a companion production to Psycho, in that it would be about a serial killer and the serial killer would be the main character and we would follow him through his his multiple murders. And um, he hadn't sketched it out much more than, um, I think, the idea of a few set pieces. There was going to be a murder at a waterfall. There was going to be some sort of climax at an oil refinery filled with brightly coloured oil drums. But the idea that the central character will be a psychopath and we'll see him going about his psychopathic ways. Um, it's, it's something that was clearly ticking through people's minds at the time, mm-hmm. ticking through these, uh, 
the thriller makers. Do we know why Hitchcock didn't go through with that in the end? Studio wouldn't fund it. Right. In the same way that um, originally he wanted, um, I think it was to cast Cary Grant and, um, wouldn't have been Cary, or Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, I think it was, in Torn Curtain, both of whom I think had retired by that point. Um, and the studio said, no, you're not casting these old people in your movies. We're, you know, we're in the business of making money. You're going to cast the new hip stars like Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. <laughs> and they're actually really good. Julie Andrews in a, in a spy thriller works surprisingly well because she's a really good actor. I don't think she gets enough credit for how varied her um, performances can be because everyone knows her as Mary Poppins. Everyone knows her for doing comedy and, and music. But she's a great dramatic actress too. Rather like Dick Van Dyke, who's done multiple terrific dramatic performances. Um, he's been a murderer in Colombo. He was in a film loosely about Stan Laurel, where he played an alcoholic comedian. Um, he's made a film himself about alcoholism, based in part on his own experiences. This is, it's the new Dick Van Dyke show. It's going to be all about the films he's done about alcoholism. Just as Bobby uh, gets in his car and drives off, we finally see the note that he'd been typing, and I have it here. Ah, yes. To whom it may concern, it is now 11.40am. My wife is still asleep, but when she wakes up I am going to kill her. Then I am going to kill my mother. I know they will get me, but there will be more killing before I die. Yep. It's... It's just so cold. No other word for it. Um, Before I Die was the script's original title, and um, Bogdanovich didn't like it, but he couldn't think of anything else. And eventually, um, Polly Platt suggested human targets, and Bogdanovich just cut it down to targets. That is seen on a on a poster in the wall in the gun shop, isn't it? The word targets. Yes. Just, just in the in the background. The um, shooting in the gun shop was obviously a bit of a challenge because you had to ask permission first. Um, and um, obviously the uh, proprietors would ask what the film was about. And Bogdanovich's answer was, well, it's about a, a father and son who reconnect when they go hunting together. <laughs> and say, oh, yeah, OK, fine. <laughs> That's perfectly this is, truthful to me. This is in contrast to um, when they got permission to film on the freeway, which they never did at all. All the freeway scenes were done without permits, even the bits where people are swerving all over the road, where there are people flagging down cars because they're being shot at, all of that was shot without permits. No one had any idea what was going on. Uh, all the actors were being directed with walkie-talkies. It's like guerrilla film absolute chaos. I know it's 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 almost absurdly dangerous. Um, and that whole sequence uh, took two days to shoot. They shot that whole section in two days because they planned it, the whole thing down to the absolute individual shots. So they knew exactly what they needed. It's, uh, that's the first point where I was particularly struck by the fact, which have been becoming obvious, that in any normal thriller, we would be siding with an, another character. We would see some of this action, some of the sniper taking out his victims, but we would be not watching it from his point of view. We would be with... His, uh, his, his victims. Yeah, either his victims or with the plucky policeman on his trail. Anybody, really, other than... But um, 
But that's the uh, that's the thing though, because we're seeing a horror movie with for the real life monster. This isn't this isn't the mummy or this isn't Frankenstein's creature. This is just the boy next door who decides to, as he puts it to uh, the owner of the gun shop, he's going to shoot some pigs. <laughs> and I like the I like the detail that as he's uh, reading off which uh, rounds of ammunition he wants, he's eating a chocolate bar. And later brings a packed lunch when he goes on his shooting spree. He's got a sandwich and a bottle of Coke with him. Yeah. Is it a sign when he ab- abandons this crime scene in some haste, but presumably not any more haste than he would have been expecting, he, he's carefully laid out guns, um, get, dis- get scattered, he uh, drops one, has to leave certain others behind. Is this a sign that things are starting to go awry? Or his carefully ordered so. world is... It's it's being intruded on by reality, hmm. which is that the police are starting to arrive, and it's also a way, in, in script terms, of cutting away the danger that he poses because he keeps he keeps having to leave behind ah. firearms wherever he goes until by the end of the movie he just has one gun left and he uses up all the ammunition, and so he's completely incapable of uh, further crime. Yeah, I mean, without getting ahead of ourselves. Actually, maybe I shouldn't say it just yet. But, I mean, in those sorts of moments, again, we're being encouraged to side with him. Oh, no, don't drop your gun. Oh, no, can you reach it? (laughs) Don't leave that behind. Because he's in the position where our audience identification figure would normally be, the person we would want to see succeeding, the person on, on whose behalf we're feeling this tension. And that's twisting around the way that films ordinarily work because if we're being put into the position where we're trying to egg on a man who's murdering innocent people that I think makes us question the way that these stories normally work Mm. that we're being manipulated normally into supporting the protagonist and normally that's fine because the protagonist is a good person but in this half of the story he's a killer but it's still almost unfolding the same way so it's putting a kind of cinematic reverse and showing you how this story works while at the same time you have someone else talking about monsters as if the Orlock storyline is commenting on the the Bobby story yes even in scenes where he's um, struggling to get somebody within his sights it's again there's tension we we're sort of automatically drawn to want him to get the person perfectly in his sights before he pulls the trigger. No matter how much you stop yourself trying to think like that, it's just human nature to... We're not, on the yeah. audio, we're not in a position to be... If we were siding with the victim, we'd be thinking, get out, get out of the way. Move to the left, move to the right. And this is just but, completely the opposite. But, but you were siding with the psychopath. I'm afraid I was, yes. Um, but I blame Peter Bogdanovich, Your Honour. <laughs> that didn't fly in Nuremberg. It's not going to work now. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sammy and Byron wake up. Uh, there's actually a rather clever cut where we see a clock in Bobby's house and it cuts to a clock in Byron's hotel room and it's only a few minutes later to give the indication that of uh, synchronous events. Um, but Sammy and Byron wake up. They they're both feel terrible. And <laughs> Sammy looks over at Byron and starts and says, oh god, I was, I was having a nightmare and then I realised that I was li- <laughs> lying next to Byron Orlock <laughs> and um, as Byron gets up and walks out of the room 
he walks past a mirror and then starts himself at his own reflection because though he forgot he was the famous horror movie actor. <laughs> and that was an ad lib thrown in by uh, Boris Karloff. Um, Jenny arrives with uh, tickets for travelling across country by train and then back to England on the Queen Mary. But he's decided that he's going to cancel it, that he's going to go through with the proposed public appearance for the following for that day after all and that'll be his final engagement as a performer uh, it looks as though the conversation with sammy from the night before has sort of made him a bit more reflective uh, rather mm. than cutting everything dead he's at least going to just have this one last fix of stardom so that later on he's having a meeting with the organizer of the event and I think that's one of my favourite scenes, in the, possibly my favourite scene in the film, where he's talking to this events organiser and saying, oh, Byron, baby, your movies are... Oh, they're, they're crazy. They, you absolutely blew my mind. And he just glowers at him and says, obviously. <laughs> and some people have written in with questions for him, and they're like questions from going live. It's like, oh, where, where do you get your crazy ideas from? Oh, what's the next? And and he's and the look on his face is: Do I really have to answer these ridiculous questions? Because that's sort of part of the uh, the show that night is expecting him to answer these things. And he says, "Well, maybe I could, maybe I could tell a story or something instead." And almost as sort of a rehearsal or performance for the other people in the room, he tells the story of the appointment in Samara by Somerset Maugham, and I have it here. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions, and in a little while the servant came back, white and trembling, and said, Master, just now when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now lend me your horse, and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, and the servant mounted it, and he dug his spurs in its flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop he went. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw the woman standing in the crowd, and he went to her and said, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? That was not a threatening gesture, she said. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I had appointment with him tonight in Samara. <gasps> yes, for and the camera, little horror story. It's a, it's a lovely little, it's a, just a little mini story. And the camera just slowly tracks in on him as it's done as a single take. Yep. It just slowly tracks in on Karloff as he delivers this in that beautiful voice of his. And Bogdanovich added this to the script deliberately after he saw The Grinch Who Stole Christmas because the TV version of that was narrated by Karloff and it actually won Karloff a Grammy for the record version. And I thought, well, I've got to, got to put him reading like a short story. I've got to give him <laughs> one of these dramatic monologues because it's so amazing. And there was only one full take that was shot. The first one went wrong because of the camera bumped into something. But at the end of that full take, Karloff pauses for a moment because he was directed to think about his own mortality for a moment. And then Bogdanovich called cut and the whole crew applauded. 
And Karloff's wife said to Bogdanovich afterwards, Do you know how long it's been since the crew applauded Boris after a take? Bless. And it's, it's, I mean, I can't do it justice. I'm just reading the text on the screen. But it's so beautifully delivered by Karloff. And, it's so, and he's even directing it as he speaks. Oh, there should be a pin spot on me as I speak. It's, it's, it's a master performer getting a chance to just sh- show off his talent. And it's almost like the film in microcosm that Bogdanovich had such respect for Karloff's talent and ability and knew that he was being wasted in these cheap, not that good Corman movies. He's giving him a real showcase of a really great performance and giving this fantastic monologue. And it just shows what an astonishing performer he really was. But at the same time, it's also it's that foreshadowing again. Because with the way the two storylines are going, you can imagine that this is Orlok thinking that he has his own appointment in Samara, with him thinking about death at the end, that he and Bobby are going to uh, come into contact at the end of the story, and it will end in his death. Because that's, yeah. that's again, that's the expected yeah. conclusion. Bobby drives to the, uh, the huge gas tanks and carefully and methodically lays out his weapons... And then decides to have lunch. But, um, as we said, he starts just taking pot shots at passing cars. Swimming across the road, people calling for help. Shooting, He shoots people as they're running away. And eventually someone comes up the side of the tank and he shoots them point blank. And um, makes a run for it, leaving half of his guns behind. Because things are starting to go wrong. And you might have noticed that there's... Um, against one of the the wall panels that he runs past as he's leaving, there's a big smear that looks like a smear of blood. That was just there. <laughs> that wasn't set decoration. They just saw that and thought, yeah, let's have him run past that. <laughs> and this is the second of three um, killing sprees, three separate murder scenes, and they're not really connected in the real world, are they? We've had no comeback from what happened to his family. And later on, when we arrive at our final destination, there's no reference to the, the famous motorway killer. No, but it's... Uh, again, it's, it's less tradi- a more traditional narrative would have had some continuous thread through there, like a single heroic operative of law tra- tracing him. But we don't get that. No, it's, it's, a, it's a totally different just, arrangement of story. He just gets away with it until he doesn't. But he's not expecting it to go on forever anyway as we no, know he, he's, he's expecting that eventually he'll be caught so we're just seeing from his point of view that he just keeps getting away with it until he's caught and, and he does run away from the, the gas containers as he starts to hear sirens and he's chased by the police and um, escapes by uh, pulling off the road and uh, hiding at the receiver drive-in I suppose that's one of the more traditional parts of the car chase it's quite, it's quite nicely done Again, shot without permits. <laughs> um, and yeah, it is, it is surprisingly neatly done because it's all you know, real cars on real roads. I've, I've seen a car chase once that was shot in entirely stationary cars indoors. Um, the first Saw movie um, has a car chase where both cars are shot with poor man's process, which is where they're just surrounded by black drapes and you have people rocking the cars in the background or you, you pan the camera... F- past them really fast 
And if you edit it together quick enough, it looks like a car chase. Uh, whereas, in fact, it is cheating. Hmm. The uh, ticket boy at the drive-in is no less than Frank Miller. <laughs> no, Frank, Frank Miller. It's not Frank Miller. The ticket boy at the drive-in is no less than Frank Marshall. Yes, I saw his name in the credits. That's um, who he was, was it? Who would go on to be Steven Spielberg's producer, hmm. um, husband of Kathleen Kennedy, and um, direct a number of films, including Arachnophobia. And oh. this was his first. This was his first film job. And one of the other staff members at the drive-in is played by um, Daniel Selznick, David Selznick's son. So it's very much um, sort of generational aspect almost that it's having the old generation handing on to the new, even in, on on multiple levels of the production. But these be friends of Roger Corman's then, or associates? They're friends or of Bogdanovich's. Or, or, but right, okay. Bogdanovich was extremely well connected. Oh yes, at this, at this point, I mean, I think it was around this time that um, he had as a house guest Orson Welles for several years. <laughs> But Wells just lived in his house. I mean, you wouldn't want him raiding the fridge, would you? <laughs> Stinking up the place with his big cigars. No, I wouldn't, really. Sorry, so, some of the most extreme sound design is at the beginning of the, the drive-in sequence. With the, uh, sorry, if I'm getting ahead. With the, no, rever- no. With the reverb on the, on the film, on the movie that's playing. Yes. It's quite unsettling. Yes, it is. Because it's coming through speakers and it's coming through car radios, so you're having multiple sound sources and they, they're overlapping in that very sort of disconcerting way. The, um, the sound editing on the film was by Werner Fields, who went on to become a very successful and very respected film editor. And the uh, freeway sni- sniping sequence was actually shot entirely silent, and she built the sound design for that from scratch right all in the editing room but it's it doesn't it doesn't seem fake it's it it sounds totally natural and real it's only in retrospect that you realize that the whole thing must have been phony i think it's uh, the film has such commitment to portraying the environments realistically um which which is interesting because so much of it is a shot on sets and a lot of the times they're quite minimal sets. And yet it's trying so hard to be, no, this is real, this is real. It, it reminds me of Back to the Future, which is quite a small-scale story, and yet has this huge orchestral score to try and trick you into thinking that it's this big, expansive story, when actually it's quite small-scale, and that's fine. So the, uh, the kind of the flat, affectless presentation of the, the, uh, the, the lack of music and yeah. the editing... Is tricking you into making, making you think that it's a very realistic presentation yeah. when it's all being done on a background of cardboard. But it's not quite cinema verite because when he needs to, with the, some of the visuals and the get and more, more obviously with the sound, he's prepared to twist real world elements to, to create a certain tension. Yes, uh, Bobby climbs into the screen of the. Uh, drive in itself, uh, having loaded his rifle and had a sandwich, and there was a number of uh, shots of, sort of audiences arriving at the drive-in that were actually all test shots that um, Bogdanovich and Kovac had previously shot of 
seeing how well they could shoot in, in that environment without using any additional lighting, just using the source light. So we see families, children coming in, uh, settling down for the movie, as Byron is being ferried to the, uh, to the, uh, the screen in a limousine, and he looks out of the window and says what was apparently Boris Karloff's favourite line in the script. God, what an ugly town this has become. Bobby starts shooting, and uh, chaos gradually begins to erupt. People realise that there's someone firing. We never linger on any of his victims for more than a, a minute or two, do we? Most of them, some of them are, we only see for a few seconds. The chap in the telephone box gets a minute or two, but it's that sort of... You never quite know how long you're going to... How well you're going to get to know any of these people, other than the fact that you're basically not going to get to know them, which also adds to the. There are little sort of, little sort of snippets of character where one man's trying to tell the people in the next car that there's someone shooting. So there's little, just little yeah. tiny pencil sketches of character there. Almost like they've been cut from another version of this film, <laughs> where that was an important plot point, <laughs> and well, that bloke it's... was, and that bloke was the hero, or the. Whether it works or whether it doesn't work, we don't care. We're not interested in that bloke. The the worst one I think is the um, the sort of the father, uh, the the boy crying, and it pans across to the father who's been shot in the throat, and it pans further across away from the car, and then there's another gunshot, and the boy's cries very abruptly stop. Yeah, and I thought I thought that was that was tough because you you can't really kill children in a film in the sixties. No. <laughs> I'm sure Hitchcock would have loved to, but uh, he would. Oh, he would have done it in real life. <laughs> um, Byron's limousine has pulled in, and he's decided that the, the car will pull down to, at the front of the screen. But he notices that people are leaving in something of a frenzy, and he says, well, they seem to be enjoying it. He does. Black humour uh, in the middle of the carnage. Exactly. Uh, whilst, as, as Bobby's trying to reload, he clumsily knocks the... Um, container of cartridges down to a lower level and has to reach down to try and grab them. And as you said earlier, it's almost essentially, oh, is he going to be able to get the bullets to continue his murder spree? <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, I hope he does, because it's, it's <laughs> just a bit further. Come on, Bobby, way. you can do it. You can do it. Come on, you can kill these innocent people. Have um, we gone past the murder of the projectionist? I think we might have, yes. This is, this is the final time I'm going to say something that seemed Hitchcockian, but just the way that... Um, I don't know, it, it, remind, it might remind me of something more specific, which isn't quite coming to mind, but it made me think of the end of... Is it Strange on the Train, where the chap running the, the merry-go-round gets shot, and the equipment run, carries on running out of control without him. Just oh, yes. And, and particularly the, the shot it? of Bobby's fingers trying to reach the bullets uh, is a very... Hitchcock type shot of someone reaching for someone's hand or at the end of is it Saboteur where um, there's the, the climax at the top of the um, Statue of Liberty and there's a and the the villain is holding on to the, the hero's sleeve and you just see very slowly the stitching giving way yep. in a close shot and, that's, and, and again that's done without music because you don't need to be told that extra element. So Bobby's down to pretty much his last gun as the police arrive. Sammy's arrived as well. Uh, And Jenny is hit. Jenny is wounded. Byron bundles her into the car and in a 
very quickly c- cross-cut scene, he sees that Bobby is off to the corner of the screen and he advances on him. Just this old man, armed with nothing other than his walking stick, advancing on a the new face of horror. <laughs> but, uh, but as this is happening, on the screen behind Byron, his character is walking towards the camera as well, also dressed in a dinner suit. And the confusion between film and reality wrongfoots Bobby just long enough for Byron to smash the gun out of his hand with his stick and then slap him across the face. Yeah, He that's really larraps him. That's absolutely terrific conceit. That um, We've left naturalism behind, but I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> It's, to get such an it's, arresting image. It's something that that you, it's, it's believable that it could happen. That it just the the image of someone in front of you, and then they're also on a huge screen as well, suddenly. And because Bobby has no apparent awareness that Orlock was going to be there, so hmm. with his clearly damaged state of mind as it is, it's enough to to just give Orlock that tiny edge that you know this crippled old man needs and he looks down at bobby cowering in this corner and says is that what i was afraid of i feel like that could be one of the the great final lines in cinema absolutely perfect Mm. as bobby's led away by the police he says as i mentioned earlier hardly ever missed did i because he's he's so proud of his marksmanship byron's bundled into the car and cars drive away and it, everything turns into this sort of massive lights against darkness in the city and then it just fades up on a single held shot the following day of the empty drive-in parking lot except for Bobby's car right in the centre and the credits roll over silence as clouds pass across and then it just fades to black I think it's an absolutely terrific film i it's been on my list to cover for Cinema Limbo for quite a while because I I was aware of it being, oh, it's Boris Kolos' last film, but it's this kind of modern avant-garde thing. And I watched it and I thought, yeah, this was pretty good. And then I watched it again to make notes and I thought, actually, this is really good. <laughs> and then I was listening to Peter Bogdanovich's commentary and thinking, actually, this is very, very good. So I I think it's really like a a keystone text of Hollywood. It's kind of the moment where old Hollywood died and handed over to the next generation with Karloff passing the torch to, you know, the new generation of movie brats like Bogdanovich, Coppola, Lucas, De Palma and Spielberg further down the line. And the the generational shift from the gentleman of horror to this new frightening world where there's, you know, the person next door could be a serial killer. We don't know because, you know, they look perfectly normal. The, mo- the real monsters don't come wrapped in bandages or have fangs in their mouth. You know, they've got crew cuts and hunting licenses. Yeah. It's almost too neat to be true, but I think you're, you could well be right. Thank that you. It, it makes that. <laughs> Very nice of you to say. That it makes that transition from the old to the new, both in inside the piece and and, and outside. We haven't why, even mentioned. Why we haven't it, even? 
Why isn't it? Why isn't it? Why better isn't it known? better known, Jeremy? I honestly don't know. I mean, as a rule of thumb, I've tried to avoid covering films that were previously featured on Movie Drone, but I've made an exception for this because people still haven't heard of the damn thing, <laughs> and. I just find it so strange. I mean, maybe, maybe because Bogdanovich's career didn't pan out quite the way people expected that he he burned out after less than ten years and has sort of not been as as big a star filmmaker as uh, his contemporaries were. Because Carla mm. has has a reputation for doing monster movies and horror movies and not being a serious actor. Because, I mean, his greatest performance, I think, is probably. Frankenstein, but this is a really remarkable, serious performance from someone who should have had much greater recognition during his lifetime. It's, I would say, it'd be comparable with something like Lost in Translation. In, it's it's giving a star a showcase for talent that hadn't previously been recognised, and as a salute to the gentleman of horror. Um, I think it's uh, it's unparalleled. You know, Christopher Lee never had a uh, sort of a, a final horror film that could match something like this. Peter Cushing didn't either. Vincent Price had Edward Scissorhands, which is a very affectionate portrait, but it's he's still it's it's his... too it's too warm almost because he's the he's the kindly eccentric scientist rather than. Any it being involved in any kind of suspense story, because targets is something that is showing the end of one era and the start of another. Something where only Karloff could have played that character. That sort of Cushing was never able to do something similar with, you know, handing over into the... Peter Cushing was originally asked to play Doctor Loomis in Halloween. And so was Christopher Lee, and so was Vincent Price, and they all turned it down. And I think that could have been the same. It could have been Lee going from the Hammer Horrors into this new world of horror, where innocent people murdered in their beds in suburbia, because that can happen. Hmm. Uh, and Lee, Lee has said that he, that was his, his only career regret, was saying no to Halloween. Not just because of the financial security of doing all the, the string of sequels, but because it was such a good script and it was such a good film. Um, but at least Karloff, even though his career was not what it could have been towards the end, he, at the very least, goes out with a remarkable work like this. And would you say, being completely honest, that there's much sign that he was capable of this sort of performance from his classic work there's not a, is there a, a line through earlier films towards this or is it just Peter Bogdanovich recognising something that the average film goer wouldn't have seen I think it's I think it's the, the latter I mean you watch his earlier work Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein most obviously but things like The Criminal Code his earlier days where he was the very charismatic menacing figure there was a, a there was a, a star quality to him. There was a charisma that was clearly there was there was clearly something there, something different from the ordinary. But 
I think it maybe it, it did take Bogdanovich to actually harness that to say that is it's not just charisma, it's talent. It's pure talent. There's a wonderful lightness of touch to this performance, which I don't know, I can't init- immediately see any of his uh, peers having pulled off in quite the same way. But... Well, um, sort of going in the other way, I mean, Vincent Price was known for having sort of quite a, a, a humorous element to him, and yet around the same time he did Witchfinder General, which is by far his darkest and most serious horror performance, and he's absolutely fantastic. So it's kind of going the other way. Um, but uh, yes, I think you're right. There is um, that. There's there's a lightness here that that would, you wouldn't have expected. So I think we should spread the word. I think um, a lot of people who might not immediately re- be attracted to the idea would would enjoy this. It's I think not a scary art film. <laughs> it's and it's not too subversive a thriller, even though it's in some ways subverting the normal rules. It doesn't completely break every every one of them it's i think it's intelligent enough for the regular moviegoer but um not too stupid to frighten off the art house crowd or maybe the other way around <laughs> but uh, you're absolutely right i'm going to start putting uh, uh bill posters around on the trees in my street yep i should have um, t-shirts and badges made excellent well i'll meet you at the clubhouse next week for the uh catch-up meeting <laughs> and also, also i shall pastiche it the next time i get a chance in one of my own scripts because <laughs> you know as you know in my line of work we like to um rip off other works and what's the use of a good idea if you can't reuse it and change it around absolutely it's just asking for it isn't it it's rude not to exactly thanks to paul for making time for this podcast His most recent Doctor Who audio dramas include The Enchantress of Numbers, The Ghosts of Greenwich, and The Talents of Greel, with those and many others available from bigfinish.com. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts with almost 70 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. However, until next time... Is that what I was afraid of? You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. (laughs) 